right? So, you know, I'd feel like I fit in a, a little bit. So, um, at any rate, no, it's so good to be here. Uh, I spent a little time this afternoon listening to one of Pastor Tom's messages uh, from a couple of weeks ago. I didn't listen to the Mother's Day message because I didn't know if that would relate. But um, I did listen to the one the week before. And you know what I heard uh, when I listened to him share? I heard a pastor passionately wanting his, past, uh, his people to have God's very best. That's what I heard. And, um, and, and it excited me. And he shared with me this afternoon about this uh, first chair. Is that uh, the number one chair? The chair of commitment? The chair of compromise? The chair of complacency? How many of you have been getting in the right chair this year? And uh, to me, that's just so awesome because... Uh, we, we want to have God's best. And, and uh, God wants us to be on the cutting edge. Not so we can say, well, I'm on the cutting edge. But, but He really does want us to be where uh, He's working actively and powerfully uh, in our lives. So um, I, I want to share with you tonight a message that was uh, born in my heart several years ago as I saw different individuals walking through life working their way through life, uh, endeavoring to, uh, you know, have God's best. And um, it has to do with just a very simple uh, truth. And that truth is this, that, that life is hard and God is good. That um, the, the realities and the challenges of life, uh, they come to everybody. And um, I, I think sometimes people have this idea that if you're a Christian, if you trust God, if you believe God, then uh, somehow your life should just be, you know, magically perfect. And um, how many of you found that's not necessarily the case? I was preaching in Indonesia a couple of years ago, actually about a year and a half ago now, and, um, you know, that's the most populous Muslim nation in the world. And I really want to do a good job for this church because I know that, you know, they're a real minority there. I know that occasionally in that nation, you know, Christians are subject to persecution. And I realize, you know, some of these people are probably, they have faced problems that I'll probably never face. And, um, and maybe some pressures that, that I may never face. And, and I just really want to do my best to encourage them and help them as you know, best I could. And, and I was endeavoring to make a real simple point. And, and essentially the simple point that I shared with you a minute ago, that, that everybody faces problems, but God helps us. And if we can keep that in mind, it'll, it'll just help us keep our, our feet on the ground and, and all that. But um, in the midst of endeavoring to make that point, I also uh, threw out a hypothetical statement. Now, you know what a hypothetical statement is, right? That's where somebody says, wouldn't it be nice if... And they throw out something that they're not necessarily saying is so, but they're saying if this could happen, it would really be nice. And uh, in doing that hypothetical, uh, I should have thought about this, but when you work through an interpreter, because none of those folks spoke English and I didn't speak their language. How many of you know, you ever hear the phrase, you can lose something in the translation? And I think we lost something in the translation here, and I'll explain that. I said to this congregation, I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if at the end of this service I could pray a miracle prayer over this entire congregation? And because of this great prayer 
that I would pray. Uh, God would bless each and every one of you with a trouble-free life. You would never face another problem again as long as you live. And, you know, I made my statement. The interpreter interpreted it. And when the interpreter interpreted that statement, the place just really got happy. And uh, I'm not a, a fireball preacher where people typically... I'm more of a systematic teacher, so people tend to listen more than react. But when I said that and the interpreter interpreted, the people kind of went wild and they began to celebrate and they began to rejoice and, and really, really be happy. And I realized what I think came out through the interpreter was not a hypothetical, but a statement of, of what was going to happen. In other words, I think what the interpreter said was, at the end of this service, Brother Cook is going to pray a miracle prayer over this entire congregation. And because of this great prayer, God is going to bless each and every one of us with a trouble-free life. We will never face another problem again as long as we live. Well, you can understand if people really believed that, they would get very excited. There was only one problem with that statement, and that is that after Sunday would come Monday. And after Monday would come Tuesday, and sooner or later the folks in that congregation that were real excited about my so-called miracle prayer were going to find out that uh, I didn't quite have the goods to deliver that. You know, because real faith, everybody say real faith. Real faith is not wishful thinking. Real faith is not hyper-idealism. Real faith is based on the Bible, the Word of God. And so I can't promise something that goes beyond what the Scripture states uh, because God has given us the basis for our faith in Scripture. And so I realized one of two things is going to happen. I can either let these folks have their celebration time here and hate me later. Or I can go ahead and kind of rain on the parade and uh, bring us back to reality. And I, I you know, would never intentionally you know, mislead or deceive people. So I said, now wait just a minute, folks. I didn't mean to imply that I could pray that kind of prayer. And I went on to explain, you know, a couple things, and then they got real kind of sad, disappointed, and, and uh, not quite as happy as they had been. But um, I, I did take them to a couple scriptures that I want to look at with you tonight, and, um, and I really believe that this will help us be in the right chair with God. And, and the first scripture that I took them to was Psalm 34 and verse 19, which says, many, everybody say many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now we know from the Bible that the way of the transgressor is hard. And um, you know, you start living life contrary to God's Word and God's principles and you're in for a world of hurt. But even when you're righteous, and we understand there's kind of a couple different applications of righteousness, you know, there is the gift of righteousness that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. How many of you here tonight can boldly raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm righteous? And when you do that, I hope you're not proclaiming your own perfection because how many of us know we don't have any perfection to, to, to proclaim? The Bible says we've all sinned, we've all come short of the glory of God. So when we talk about righteousness, we're not talking about us having a perfect 
track record or never sinning or never making a mistake. When we talk about righteousness, this is what we're talking about, that we were unrighteous. But Jesus went to the cross, took our sins upon Himself, shed His blood so that we could have total and complete forgiveness, rose from the dead like we were singing earlier. He conquered death and He has offered to us the gift of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. And so we have righteousness not by performance but by a gift from God. But then there's also an aspect of living righteously. And so we never think that it's based on our living. It's based on our faith in the Lord Jesus. But then how many of you know once you've been made righteous, it's good to go ahead and express that in your life through righteous and godly living. But the Bible says many are the what? The afflictions of the righteous but... Aren't you glad it doesn't just end with the negative? But the Lord delivers him out of them all. So I can't get up and tell a group of people, I'm going to pray for you that you're never going to have a problem again as long as you live. Well, I guess I could as long as you don't live very long. Matter of fact, one minister I know was in a prayer line and people were coming up for prayer and he was praying for them for different things. And he said to one man, he said, how do you want me to pray for you? And that man said, well, I want you to pray for me that I will never face another problem from the devil as long as I live. And the minister said, oh, so you're wanting me to pray that you'll just go ahead and die. And the guy said, oh, no, I didn't mean that. And the minister explained to him, said, well, the only way you're never going to face another problem again is to just go ahead, die, go on to heaven where Jesus is because that's the only place where there's no problems. So the Bible's not promising us we're never going to face a problem. But here's what the Bible does promise us. We'll never face a problem bigger than our God. And there will never be a problem that comes against us that God is not able and willing to see us through victoriously and to bring us out successfully on the other side of that deal. And then there's a a New Testament verse that I took them to because we want to look at some New Testament passages as well. And I took them to John chapter 16, verse 33. John 16:33, where Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you. Aren't you glad for what Jesus said? Amen. And if it weren't for what Jesus said, it would be so hopeless in this world. Uh, Jesus said, These things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. Now, how many of you would know that that was true, the second part of that, without even reading a Bible? in the world you're going to have tribulation. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a, a, a genius to realize that this world is crazy and getting crazier by the day and that people in this world are, are frustrated, they're, they're in fear, many are angry, many are hopeless. Uh, Jesus said in the world there's going to be tribulation, but he said, but be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. And see, the reason we can sing and celebrate the way we did earlier is because what Jesus did, He did for us. We are the recipient. We are the beneficiary of His victory. He didn't just conquer death, hell, and the grave for His own sake. He did it for our sake. 
we get to partake of, of the very resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only for a future resurrection when we get our new glorified bodies, but, but there is a, an element of resurrection power that is to work in our life on a daily basis because we have the resurrected one living on the inside of us. And so, um, you know, we look at these two scriptures, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We look at this scripture from Jesus, these things have I spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You know, there's something about just having a realistic faith, uh, there was a guy named Admiral Jim Stockdale who survived uh, the Hilton, Hanoi Hilton. Uh, he was a prisoner of war in the Vietnam War for eight years. He was the highest ranking U.S. military uh, officer in captivity. He was tortured more than 20 times. And he uh, helped a whole bunch of our servicemen uh, survive that and helped get them the best attitude that they could have you know, he coached and encouraged them as much as he could. And he said that one of the distinctive uh, attributes of people that survived, you know, the worst of those situations, and, and it eventually became known as the Stockdale Paradox. And he said, he said to survive the most difficult situations of life, he said there's two things you have to do. Number one, he said, you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end. And, and this is number two, and you must face the, the, the ugly realities of the brutal facts. How many of you know that faith is not denial? Faith is not pretending and wishful thinking that we'll never face a problem. Faith is tough. And faith says, no matter what this world throws at me, I, I may encounter some of these afflictions. I may encounter some of these tribulations. But my God is bigger. And no matter what the enemy throws at me, I will prevail. Because my God is bigger. My God is greater. God is on my side. He's inside of me. He, he's leading me. He's guiding me. He's taking me to the place in life that He wants me to go. And uh, so I want to share with you real quickly, I won't take terribly long with this tonight, but I want to share with you three types of adversities that you may encounter in life. And I want to look at the source of these problems. Uh, we're actually going to be calling this storms. And uh, three different types of storms that, that you may face. Now, Lisa and I just flew out of Oklahoma earlier today. And uh, everybody back there is watching out for tornadoes tonight. And I guess Texas just got hit the other night. They had 10 tornadoes in Texas and all that. So aren't you glad you live in Washington? Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but you know, my wife, we, we've been there, you know, a few weeks ago, two miles from our house, uh, a house two miles from where we live, got the roof ripped off by a tornado. It wasn't a big one, just enough to rip a roof off. And uh, just hit that one house as far as we know. But, you know, my wife keeps an eye on the weather. And she has never once in our lives, we've lived in Oklahoma for 34 years, she has never once called me and I'm upstairs studying. Tony, there's a tornado warning. You know, you'd better come downstairs. 
I've never said, oh, honey, it's no problem. I've got a, I've got a, uh, a snow shovel in the garage. No, no problem. The reason I've never said that is snow shovels don't do anything about tornadoes. Now, blizzards, yeah, the snow shovel can help you if you get a blizzard, but it isn't going to help you with a tornado. You know, the, the folks that live on the Gulf Coast and the southeastern coast of our country, you know, when they get hurricanes and things like that, you know, they do certain things to, you know, how many of you know it's good to know the difference between a hurricane, a tornado, and a blizzard? You know, if you're going to have to deal with one of those, you'd better know, you know, what you do in those respective cases. And, and I believe that as we look at the Word of God, we see that not only naturally are there different types of storms naturally, but when we look at the Word of God, we see that there are different kinds of storms spiritually. And I want to tell you about three types of storms. First is what we're going to call the storm of Jonah. How many of you remember good old Jonah from the Old Testament? Jonah was a prophet, a preacher in the Old Testament. And, and does anybody remember where God told Jonah to go? Told him to go to a place called Nineveh. And uh, Jonah, of course, was an Israelite. He lived in Israel. And um, if you've never looked up to find out where Nineveh is or was, Nineveh uh, was in what today is the nation of Iraq. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians and the Israelites absolutely hated each other. And so when God told Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, you know, I mean, that would be today almost like, you know, God telling you to go, go preach in North Korea. You know, and not just preach in North Korea, but go preach in the capital of North Korea or go to Tehran. And go stand in the city square and, and, and tell, you know, Ahmadinejad and all, you know, those guys over there that they need to repent and things like that. Well, Jonah, uh, and, and what God said was the wickedness of these Ninevites is very great. And if they don't repent, uh, they're going to be destroyed. Well, Jonah couldn't have heard any better news than the fact that the Ninevites were going to be destroyed. He was a good, patriotic, nationalistic Israelite. And so Jonah gets on a ship to go somewhere. Do you remember where he got on a ship to go to? A place called Tarshish. He started from Joppa, but he got on a ship to go to Tarshish. Now let me just show you this real quick. We'll just say that Jonah is right here in Israel, okay? And God tells him to go up here. It really wasn't too far to Nineveh. And you know what Jonah does? Jonah gets on a ship to go to a place called Tarshish, which is in Spain today. You say, wait a minute, that's the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Absolutely. He was getting as far away from the call of God. He was getting as far away from the assignment, the mission that God had for him as he possibly could. What do we call it when God tells somebody to do one thing and instead they go and do the exact opposite? What do we call that? We call that disobedience. You call it rebellion. A whole lot of different terms you can do. But God told him to go to Nineveh. God, uh, Jonah says, no, thank you. He goes to Spain instead. Well, what happened shortly after Jonah got on the ship heading to Spain? You remember what happened? A great storm came up. And because Jonah, being the clever guy that he was, had already told everybody else on the boat that he was running away from God, 
uh, they decided he must be the source of the problem, and they did what to him? They threw him overboard. And this is where we pick up in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. They threw Jonah overboard, and it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. I want you to think a minute, seriously, about being inside, going down. Can you imagine what going down the throat felt like? Landing the, the, the slime, the, uh, you land in a pool of gastric juices. It's dark. Can you imagine the smell, the odor in the belly of the fish? Can you imagine the partially digested other things that are bumping up against you? And he even talks a little bit later about the seaweed that is wrapped around his head. You know, I grew up in north central Indiana. I went to high school in the middle of four cornfields. And so I just wasn't around fish a lot. I'll be real honest with you. I, I'm, you know, if you're a real fisherman, you'll think I'm a real sissy. But I don't even like to touch fish on the outside. You know, unless it's grilled or sautéed or something like that. But just fish, I, I just didn't grow up with that. And so that's just kind of like, yeah, I'd just rather not touch that. And, uh, but to be inside the belly of a fish, it says, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish, how long? Three days and three nights. Now, do you think that experience would do anything to your relationship with God? Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I don't know if you see humor in the Bible, but I do sometimes. Look at the next verse, Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. And my thought is, really, does it really take you three days and three nights in the belly of a fish before you decide you're going to go ahead and say uncle, or I guess father, and, and you're going to go ahead and decide to pray? Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Do you think there might have been a little bit of stubbornness in Jonah? I'm just going to ride this out. I'll give it, you know, I'll give it uh, 72 hours before I'll, you know, maybe I'll just get out of here some other. But Jonah finally gave in, finally prayed. And, uh, and really what he did here is he, if you read this prayer, it's kind of a beautiful prayer. He acknowledges the greatness of God. He, he talks about his situation a little bit, but finally he says, you know, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord, which I think he was saying, I'm going to get back on track and do life God's way and, and do things the way God wants me to do them. And, uh, and the Bible says then that, you know, God uh, caused Jonah to be ejected from the belly of the fish, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh and preach. And this time Jonah says, I think I'll do it this time. But real simply, real simply, Jonah got into his storm because of what? Give me one word. Disobedience. And he got out of his storm, again, another single word, repentance. He'd been running away from God. He found out that the way of the transgressor is hard. And he decided, I'm going to turn my heart, my life, my mind, my actions, my obedience back toward God and do what God has told me to do. And Jonah got out of the storm and he got, uh, he got done what God wanted him to get done. He went to Nineveh, he preached, they got spared. You know, there's a lot of people though that think that every kind of storm that people face in life is a Jonah storm. 
They think that every time adversity comes, that it's because, well, that person must be out of the will of God. Have you ever, and you don't have to raise your hand here, but have you ever heard about somebody, you know, that had something go wrong in their life and maybe you were tempted to do it or maybe you heard other people tempted to do it, you know, kind of said, well, I wonder what they're doing wrong. Wonder, wonder where they're out of the will of God. Wonder where they're in sin. Wonder where they're missing it. Or let me ask you this question. Have you ever encountered just some really nasty stuff in your life where things didn't go right and, and then you start wondering, well, what did I do wrong? God, is there sin in my life? You know, and I want you to know this, that, that not every storm in life is a Jonah storm. And I want us to look at the second type of storm, and that is the storm of the disciples. Everybody say the disciples. We read about this in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 35. Jesus had been preaching all day long, and He was preaching right beside the Sea of Galilee. And it says, On the same day when evening had come, He said to them, Jesus said to His disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Now, I want you to picture yourself as one of Jesus' disciples. You're standing there by the seashore. You've been there all day long. You've got a bunch of boats there that are yours. And uh, Jesus says, let's cross over to the other side. Question, what is the will of God for your life right now? Go over to the other side. That wasn't a trick question. That was just real straightforward. Uh, Jesus says, let's cross over to the other side. So what do they do? Look at the very next verse, verse, verse 36. They, they left the multitude. They stepped away from the crowd that was there. Uh, they took him, Jesus, along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. So what do they do? Jesus says, let's cross over to the other side. So they step away from the crowd. They get into the boats and they start heading to the other side. So, question, are they in the will of God or out of the will of God? Are they doing what Jesus said to do, or are they disobeying Him? They're doing exactly what Jesus said to do. And look at the very next verse, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, meaning filling with water. So Jonah got into his storm in the midst of what? Disobedience. The disciples get into their storm in the midst of what? Obedience. So I want to give you this great theological conclusion. You can encounter a storm in your life at one of two times. When you're out of the will of God or when you're in the will of God. You say, wait a minute, that sounds like just about any time. Yeah, it's that thing called life. Problems can happen just about any time, when you're out of the will of God or when you're in the will of God. But now, let's see how this whole thing came down. The next verse says, the boat's already filling up with water, but Jesus was in the back of the boat, uh, the stern, asleep on a pillow. And it goes on to say... Uh, uh, he was in the back asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That verse, that statement reveals something very significant about human nature. 
When you and I get into a problem, there are two major beliefs that we need to resist. Number one, we need to resist assuming that Jesus doesn't care. And number two, we need to resist assuming that we are perishing. Those are two natural reactions to a crisis. God, you must not care. And number two, it's curtains for us. That second thing, that we are perishing, that's what's called catastrophic thinking. That's, that is believing that the worst possible outcome is inevitable. And when you think that God doesn't care for you, it's kind of natural then to assume that the worst case scenario is going to happen. So let me just encourage you to resist that. Next time that you get hit by a storm, resist the false belief that God doesn't care. And resist the false belief that this is going to turn out the worst possible way and that, that you're just going to perish and it's just going to be catastrophic. So what does Jesus do then? How does He respond? Then He arose, and what did He do? He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And there was a great calm. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Let me, let me tell you what happened here. They got into their storm in the midst of perfect obedience. And they got out of their storm through, I'm going to give you two very important words, spiritual authority. Spiritual authority. And spiritual authority is, is exercised through words. Jesus spoke to the sea and said to the wind. Do you know sometimes in life you just need to talk to some things? Sometimes you need to talk to your body. Sometimes you need to talk to your mind. Sometimes we need to talk to our wallet. Uh, sometimes we need to, you know, because here's the thing, the circumstances of life are always talking to us. And sometimes we just need to talk back. Sometimes we need to argue back. And in this particular case, Jesus took spiritual authority, and this is how they got delivered out of their predicament. Now, let me tell you two very important things that Jesus did not say or did not do. Number one, Jesus did not stand up, look at the storm, and then turn to his disciples and say, all right, which one of you guys sinned? Who's been having the bad thoughts? Which of you said a bad word? You know, Jesus, here's the point. Jesus did not assume that someone's specific sin was the basis for that storm coming. Storms can happen when you haven't done anything wrong. As a matter of fact, this storm came when they were doing everything right. Do you know what was on the other side of the lake by the way, the Sea of Galilee. You know what was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? A demon-possessed man, the madman of Gadara. And Jesus was on His way to set that man free. I'm going to tell you what, and, and Pastor Tom, you alluded to this in that message I listened to. You alluded to this that when you set out to do the will of God, 
sometimes you're going to face some very strong opposition. Not because you're doing anything wrong, but because you're doing something right. Jesus had just taught them earlier in Mark chapter 4 that Satan comes for the word's sake. And Satan wants to keep you from your assigned position in life. Satan wants to keep Jonah out of Nineveh. And Satan wants to keep Jesus from getting to the other side. And Satan, to be real honest, and I'm not talking about, you know, we just need to be real hyper-conscientious of him or conscious of him, but we need to understand there is an enemy to our souls. And he wants desperately to keep us from embracing the Word of God. Now, for most of us, uh, God's will for our life doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a geographical location such as Nineveh or the other side of the Sea of Galilee. For most of us, the will of God is not necessarily a geographical thing so much as it is a qualitative state of of becoming spiritually mature, becoming spiritually obedient, uh, having our life conform to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, having our lives governed by the Word and the Spirit and the love of God. That's our destination that God has called us to, just like He called Jonah to Nineveh and He called Jesus and the disciples to go to the other side. So, first of all, Jesus did not assume that somebody had sinned, thus causing the storm. Number two, and this is very important, Jesus did not believe that the storm was some kind of gift from God to teach them something or to make them more spiritual or more holy. Jesus did not believe that this adversity had come as a gift from God to somehow improve their lives. Do you notice that Jesus did not say, well, gentlemen, wow, we don't know why this storm happened, but God must be trying to teach us something. So guys, let's just sit down in the boat here. Let's hold hands and sing, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be the future. No, Jesus didn't believe in, in, in the idea that just every negative thing is somehow a gift from God. Now, I believe that God absolutely, as we look to Him, as we trust Him, He can bring good out of anything and will bring good out of everything if we look to Him and trust Him. But this thing that came, Jesus didn't see it as a gift from God. He saw it apparently as some kind of attack of the enemy because He rebukes it and commands it to stop. If that was the will of of God, then Jesus was coming against the will of God. But he understood this thing was, was, was uh, an attack of some kind that uh, Jesus felt he had to take spiritual authority over. So we see two very distinct types of storms. Jonah, I want you to answer this out loud. Jonah got into his storm because of disobedience. disobedience. He got out of his storm through repentance. The disciples got into their storm in the midst of perfect obedience and they got out when Jesus exercised spiritual authority. Now, some people might think, well, yeah, but only Jesus can do that. Well, granted, I don't know too many folks that have done this exact kind of thing, but did you know that Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. 
Jesus taught us that we could have spiritual authority in life as well. Now, there's a third type of storm. We've looked at the storm of Jonah. We've looked at the storm of the disciples. There's a third storm in Acts chapter 27 that involves the Apostle Paul. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 27, Paul is a prisoner. He's been arrested. Anybody know what he's been arrested for? Jaywalking? Preaching. Thank you. He got arrested for preaching the gospel. And um, he knew, he'd gotten arrested in Israel, he knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial there because it was going to be a religiously based trial and the people who were trying him had already determined they were going to kill him. And so Paul knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial So he, because he was a Roman citizen. He appealed to Caesar. And uh, so now because he appeals to Caesar, he gets removed from that court system and it's now the responsibility of the Roman authorities to transport Paul all the way to Rome and to stand trial before Caesar. And so they're already on a boat. They've made their way out to a little island in the, in the uh, Mediterranean called Crete. And um, here's what happens. Now, it says when much uh, time had been spent, let me get here in my own notes, uh, it goes on to say Paul advised them. Now, how many of you know when you're a prisoner, uh, people don't really care about your opinion? But when you're a leader, you're a leader. And so Paul is giving the, the people that he's a prisoner to, he advises them and says, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now, where does Paul get off saying this? How does he know what's going to happen? He's no expert sailor. He's no expert weatherman. So where does Paul get off saying this? How does Paul know, how does he perceive that this voyage is going to end with disaster? Holy Spirit. He's got the Holy Spirit in his life. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would show us things to come. And so Paul's in a real problem here because the Holy Spirit apparently is showing him this and he's telling all the people, but guess what? When you're a prisoner, your opinion doesn't always count very much. So what happens? Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in. What are those next three words? The majority advised to set sail from there also. How many of you know the majority's not always right? And you know what they did when they set sail from there? They sailed out into a horrible, horrible storm. Paul got into his storm because of the disobedience of other people. That's a third storm altogether, isn't it? And how many people in life today end up suffering in life because of somebody else's bonehead decision and wrong actions? And maybe we're somehow connected to them and, and that type of thing. They sailed into a horrible storm 
that lasted for 14 days and 14 nights. How many of you have ever been out, probably here up on the Pacific, and you've been out deep sea fishing or something, and you've gotten into a bad storm? Uh, Lisa and I, in uh, March of this year, Lisa and I in March of this year were leading a tour in Turkey, the nation of Turkey, and we were visiting the biblical sites, the church, the seven churches of the book of Revelation, and from the port that's right near ancient Ephesus, our little group jumped on a boat, an 87-foot boat, and we sailed 40 miles out into the Mediterranean to spend the day on the island of Patmos, where John wrote the book of Revelation. It was a four-hour boat ride, and um, the seas were very, very rough. And um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but uh, three-fourths of the people on our boat, not including my wife, but including me, were very sick. And um, I called it our Old Testament trip because we had a lot of heave offerings (laughs) that were being uh, made. But um, at any rate, we spent the four hours out there, and man, people on our boat were sicker than dogs. And um, it was a miserable experience. And I'm thinking, man, we're in this. I was laying on a, you know, a bench, just don't touch me, don't talk to me, don't, please don't make any noise. And um, these guys are on this ship for 14 days and 14 nights. And you say, well, why didn't they just get there? Why didn't Paul just make that storm stop immediately? How many of you have ever had an instantaneous answer to a prayer? Let me see your hand. You've had an instantaneous answer or you've seen God do something instantly. How many of you have also had an answer to prayer, but it didn't happen instantaneously? It happened progressively over time. Let me see your hands on that. Now, how many of you would like me to tell you right now How many of you would like me to tell you how to always get an instant answer? Would you like me to tell you that tonight? How many of you? Most. Do you really want me to tell you? Okay, here's the deal. I'm going to tell you how to always get an instant answer to prayer. As soon as I've prayed that uh, miracle prayer for you, that you'll never face another problem again as long as you live. Right after I do that one, then I'm going to say, here's the truth. I don't know why. But I do know that sometimes there are things that happen progressively as a matter of process rather than instantaneously. Some things are more of a process than an event. I think it was Joyce Meyer that said, but everybody wants a drive-through breakthrough. You know, we want that type of thing. But let's, let's look and see what happened here, and we'll be closing shortly. Acts chapter 27, verse 20 says, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope, everybody say hope, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Man, that's nasty when it's hopeless. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Isn't that a great statement? How do we say that today? I told you so. 
And he really had. He had told them so. Maybe you don't always want to say that, but Paul did. He said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you, brethren, to take heart, uh, for there will be no loss of life among you. See, that part changed. How did that part... Because originally people were going to die, but now Paul says nobody's going to die. See, we don't see the instant answer, but we see an answer here. We see God moving. And sometimes we get, why, why didn't that happen immediately? Well, I don't know why it didn't happen immediately, but let's look what did happen. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. The ship's still going down. Sometimes in prayer, you can change some things, but you can't change all of it. But thank God for the parts that can change. But only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. That wording makes me think that Paul had prayed for him because the angel said, God has granted you. Sounds like a request had been answered. You know what to me is a miracle? Not just that they survived this thing, but that Paul actually had the grace to pray for the turkeys that put him in the situation. That's a miracle right there. Because how many of us would have been tempted to pray, God, I told them, so they deserve to die. Let them die. Let them drown. Just get me off this thing. Paul was so moved with compassion and mercy that, that he was praying for the people that had put him in this horrible situation. See, Paul had to resist the temptation to be angry at God and to hold bitterness and resentment toward people. Paul could have easily said, God, I've served you all these years, and man, I'm in this long, drawn-out storm, and why haven't I gotten an immediate answer? And all that. But Paul didn't look at that. He just said, God, these men are going to hell if they drown. God saved these men. I know they made a mistake. I know they should have listened to me, but they didn't. God saved these men. You know, give them another chance and that type of thing. And, and so Paul, uh, it goes on to say, Paul said this in verse 25, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Isn't that awesome? And see, here's the beautiful thing. Let me just wrap this up. All three of these individuals or groups, Jonah made it to Nineveh. The disciples made it to the other side. Paul made it to Rome. Many times when you face storms in your life, they really shouldn't receive your full attention because your full attention needs to be on where you're going, not on the hindrance that is stopping you. But Satan really has won uh, some degree of victory if he can get you so preoccupied with the storm that you forget your destination that you forget what your purpose in life is, you know, what, what is the goal of your marriage, what is the goal of your finances, what is the goal of your uh, emotional health, what is the goal, what are the goals in life that you're moving toward, and what is it that God wants to accomplish in your life? Don't let the storms become the major focus. Don't let the hindrances become the major issue. Somebody said obstacles are those scary things that you look at when you take your eyes off the goal. 
Keep your eye on the goal. Uh, one woman, and I'll close with this statement, one woman came to me after I shared this message once and she said, Brother Cook, she said, thank you for that message. I never thought about those different kinds of storms. But she said, what do you do if you're in all three storms at once? She said, because there's one area of my life where I just totally made a stupid decision a while back and, man, I'm, I'm you know, dealing with some consequences of my Jonah decision. I was disobeyed God and she said, I've got some residual you know, problems I'm dealing with because of that. And she said, there's another area where I, like the disciples, man, I deter- I'm going to do what God says do. And she says, when I determined to obey God, a bunch of problems broke out there. And uh, she said, there's a third area of my life where I feel like I'm Paul. You know, another person made a bad decision. I'm dealing. She said, what do you do when you're dealing with all three storms at once? And I said, well, ma'am, the only thing I know to tell you to do is you need to repent like Jonah and you need to speak the word like Jesus and exercise faith like Jesus and you need to persevere like Paul. Because that's how Paul got out of his storm. He just had to persevere. He had to ride that thing through. And man, I wish that weren't the case, but sometimes we do that. And Jesus didn't even stop every storm immediately. You remember there was one storm he just decided to walk on top of. So, you know, I don't think one size fits all. I don't think one storm fits all. But I'll tell you what, we have a God who's promised to get us through whatever junk, whatever garbage this life brings. We have a God who's promised to get us through if we'll respond to Him appropriately. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank You right now for Your goodness and for Your mercy. Lord, I thank You that You've given us wisdom in Your Word how to walk.